Friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me in them to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, this morning, we're continuing our series in 1 Timothy, looking at the theme, living as God's household. Uh, today, our section of scripture is fairly large. It's verses 1 to 16. Uh, so I'm simply going to give an overview. I'm going to uh, just highlight a few verses um, as we survey this text. Um, and what we're talking about this morning is what it means to extend care in the church, uh, what it means to care for one another as members in God's household. So if you are able, I invite you to stand with me. We stand because it's an act of worship. We stand for the reading and the receiving of God's word as a sign of our reverence for God and his word. So 1 Timothy chapter 5, reading verses 1 to 16. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a, woman, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. The grass withers and the flower falls. The word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And friends, would you join me once more in prayer? Lord God and Father, we ask for your help at this time that by your spirit you would illuminate the truths of your word to us. We pray, Lord, that we can uh, understand um, beyond cognition, beyond um, comprehension, um, but that we would understand truly so that our hearts are convicted and conformed uh, to the teaching of your word. Be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been saying throughout the series in 1 Timothy that Paul lays out the thesis for this book in chapter 3. If you look in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes this, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Right? So Paul calls the church a household of God. And when he conveys this, he wants us to understand that coming to church is not simply uh, like coming to a gathering, attending a gathering, nor is it like joining an organization. But that coming to church is a spiritual family, that we're entering into a family, we're becoming members of it. So then our relationships with one another should be far more than just casual relationships or cordial relationships. Our relationships with one another should be familial relationships. 
And as a result of that, our responsibilities to one another should be familial responsibilities. Now, if that's true, if we are called to be a household of God, then let me ask you this question. What connection do you feel to the people around you? Now, you're probably sitting either with family or with friends, so don't just look left and right, but look a few rows ahead of you or a few rows behind you or look across the aisle and ask yourself this question. What connection do I have to that believer in God's household? Are they mere strangers to me? Are they like acquaintances? Or maybe going a little further, are the bonds and connections I have with them, are they more or less the same as the ones I have with my coworkers or my neighbors or other people that I regularly see and come across in life? You see, if what Paul says and writes here in 1 Timothy is true, you should be able to look at others around you in the church, other believers, and experience them to be family in Christ. That means to have and to experience some measure of intimacy, vulnerability, trust, unity, care, compassion, and concern. Now, obviously, you cannot have the same degree of that with every single person, but some measure of that with some people. And so Paul, using this idea of the church as family, launches into the beginning of this verse, Working on the foundation, and writes in verses 1 to 2, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, when Paul writes this, he's not creating the identity of the church as family. He's actually just borrowing, taking from what Jesus himself said. Jesus in Mark chapter 3 Uh, We read this, and looking about at those who sat around them, he, Jesus said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, Jesus and Paul would have us view other Christians as more than those who just believe the same thing, as fellow disciples or fellow congregants. Jesus and Paul would have us view other Christians, those who share God as their heavenly father, because we've been adopted by grace through faith into the family as what he says here, fathers and brothers and mothers and sisters, that the horizontal relationship with God as father and us entering into his family creates the vertical relationship, creates horizontal relationships to one another, bonds, connections, relationships. And that's what Paul is basing his exhortation here on in verses one and two. Now, the command is simple. This is the command. Do not rebuke, but encourage. So when you relate to other people in the church, don't rebuke, but encourage. Now, Paul isn't saying here, don't rebuke as in um, let sin slide, let error, uh, ignore it. It's not that important. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying, when he says do not rebuke, he's saying, when you speak to one another, don't speak harshly, don't speak severely, speak to one another with respect with love. So rather than rebuking harshly, encourage with gentleness, exhort them, appeal to them. And so as you do so, you are treating one another as family, older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters. Now it's important here because what Paul is saying is this, he's not saying church is like a family. He's saying church is a family a family that God has brought together. 
And that relationship is lived out in how you speak to one another, how you treat one another, how you relate to one another. Now, I know the tempting question is probably something like this as you reflect on this. We're all thinking something like, well, do I experience church like this? Do I experience church as a family? But I want to gently push back and say, well, maybe don't start with that question. Don't think, am I experiencing others to be a family to me? Rather, ask this question, am I prioritizing and practicing this family dynamic to other believers in the church? Not, am I experiencing what, how other people are treating me as family, but am I living out and practicing and treating other people like fathers, brothers, mothers, and sisters? You see, because if we're all concerned with the question, what am I receiving? And we're all preoccupied in that self-centered, self-focused question, then the reality is none of us are going to experience this. Because if we're all going, well, are people treating me like that? And we're all focused on ourselves and no one's going to treat each other that way. But if we all start asking ourselves, am I treating others like that? And that becomes our priority and that becomes our practice. Then guess what? We will begin to experience one another as family. You see, Cornerstone, that's the dream here. That, that's Paul's vision, Christ's vision for the church. That as we embrace and live out our family relationship, that we begin to have family responsibilities, loving one another, serving one another, comforting one another, caring for one another. You know, Megan Hill wrote a book called A Place to Belong. Uh, the subtitle is uh, Learning to Love the Local Church. So it's about a book about the local church. And she recounts her experience when she was a college student in uh, rural Pennsylvania. Uh, she attended Grove City College. And she talks about her experience as a student going to the local church that was not too far from the school and how a bunch of students ended up going to that church. But they ran into this problem because after the service and getting back into uh, the vehicles to go back to campus, when they got back to campus, the dining hall was closed. And it was a small school. There weren't multiple dining halls. It was kind of in the middle of nowhere. And so it's not like you could just pop into town and DoorDash, you know, that stuff didn't exist back then. And so she says the only available food options was whatever was in the um, vending machines, that that's what your lunch would be. That's what your snack would be. And she said that could have been a major problem in the church until church members began to recognize that problem. And they turned a problem into an opportunity and a blessing. And she relates how People, members started opening up their homes and inviting these students over and being welcomed into their family, being welcomed into their homes. They were given a seat at the table and not sit down as a guest in our home, but sit down as family. And because they had an evening service, they would even offer up their beds and say, take a nap as her family. And she writes these words, which I found very helpful. She says this, in hindsight, these meals were not individually remarkable. They were ordinary lunches in ordinary houses with ordinary people. But over the span of weeks and years, they shaped my experience of belonging to that church. By feeding me lunch and then handing me a dish towel, these families welcomed me into their home. By opening their doors and in their hearts, they invited me to belong. I had no marital or biological ties to anyone in the church, and yet in a very short time, they became my family. Friends, what is church if not a family that God has brought together by the blood of his son? You see, by uniting us to Jesus, we get many gospel benefits. In our union with Christ, we get many gospel blessings. And one of those benefits and blessings is that the church is God's household. And we access the benefit, we access the blessing by living in this familial relationship with one another. Taking ownership 
of one another, having vested interest in one another, acknowledging and seeing each other as fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. And this kind of family is radically different than our earthly families. Our earthly families, which some of us come from families with severe dysfunction and brokenness and hurt and pain. But this new family God is creating, where Jesus has brought us together, has a new calling and a new culture by which we are called to love one another and care for one another. Now, it's interesting because Paul established this in verses 1 and 2, and then as we read in our passage, you kind of abruptly transition to widows. And it's kind of like, well, Paul, what happened there? Why are you talking about widows all of a sudden? But the transition isn't as abrupt as you might think. Because here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, if we are truly a family in Christ called to care for one another, then we should care for widows. We should care for the widows in our church as mothers, as sisters. So he writes this in verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. Now, the little phrase, truly widows, uh, is used three times in this passage, in verses 3 here, in verse 5, and verse 16. And Paul says truly widows because his point is basically this. There are those, truly true widows are those who are truly destitute, truly dependent, truly desperate, in a dire state of these things because there's no one else to care for them. Now, why does he single widows? Well, on the one hand, you can say he singles widows because, right, Paul is talking to Timothy about his specific church. There must have been a lot of widows and the church needed to know how to relate to them. But he singles out widows because in the Bible, widows play an extremely important role as those whom God loves dearly. See, because at the time of the Bible, you uh, transport yourself 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago in the Old Testament, widows were those in society who, yes, they lost their husbands. And so they were dealing with emotional grief. They were dealing with loneliness. But in society, they were dealing with uh, a loss of status and significance, a loss of security. And so widows were disenfranchised and they were neglected and they were forgotten and they were left to fend for themselves. And so God, countless times in his word, reveals his heart that he has a care and concern and compassion for widows. So he commands his people to exercise the same care and compassion and concern by providing and protecting widows. You read the Bible, friends, and this jumps out to you in all of scripture. You look at the Old Testament and you're simply blown away but the slew of examples there are, the sheer frequency with which God addresses this. Exodus 22, God says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. Deuteronomy 27, cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Isaiah 1, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's calls. Zechariah 7, render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And this is just a small sample of what the Old Testament reveals about God's heart to care for the widows. Widows who are often grouped with the fatherless, the orphans, the strangers, the sojourners, the poor, those considered to be among the least of these. 
You go to the New Testament and you look at Jesus' ministry and you realize that Jesus has the same heart. And so in Luke 7, he's walking through the town of Nine and he sees a widow and he looks at her and says he has great compassion on her. And he says to her, do not weep. He stops what he's doing to minister to her. In Mark 12, he's teaching and giving a warning about the scribes and says, beware of the scribes. Why? What are the scribes? Like, what have they done? The scribes, beware of them who devour widows' houses. They will receive the greater condemnation. And then, whereas the rest of society was looking down upon the widows, despising them, Jesus, in a great role reversal, holds them up as examples of faith and godliness. In Luke 18, he's teaching about the persistence of prayer. And of all the examples he can give, he gives a parable about a widow who's pleading the justice of the judge continually. In Luke 21, Jesus is teaching about radical generosity and he could teach it in any ways, but he chooses to use a story about a poor widow who gave not out of her abundance, but out of her poverty. So it's no surprise then with the evidence in the Old Testament of God's heart for the widows and the evidence of Christ's ministry and his heart for the widows that the early church then showed the same concern for widows. So in Acts chapter 6, when there are widows being neglected, this wasn't a problem to ignore in the church. It wasn't an inconvenience to deal with. There's a problem with the widows. What does the church decide? We're going to pick the most godly, spirit-filled, the best men in our church. We're going to create and form a DAC, and we're going to call them and commission them to care for the widows. In James chapter 1, when the early church is wrestling, what is gospel? What is religion? How are we to understand this? We don't want to be satisfied with the religion of false works and, and dead practices. James comes in and he clarifies, what is religion? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Which leads us then to our passage in 1 Timothy 5, where Paul gives the most lengthy and extensive treatment on caring for widows in the church. Verses 3 to 16, filled with this matter. The question is, why does the Bible, why is it so concerned with this? And the answer is simple. The Bible is concerned with it because God is concerned with it. God wants his people to care for the destitute and the desperate just like he does. And he says, this kind of care and compassion and concern should mark the family of God because it marks the very heart of God. It's like this. Why is there so much written on it? Because this shows God's concern. Imagine that you're married and you want to go out on a date night, but you have two kids. One is eight and one is two. And so you call a babysitter, babysitter over and you give them instructions before you head out for the evening. And when you give instructions to the babysitter and you have two kids, one eight and one is two, which kid do you focus more on? Which kid is going to need more instructions concerning? It's obviously going to be the younger one because the younger one is more needy and dependent. So you'll say to the babysitter, well, the older one, well, she's pretty independent. She could take care of herself. And so just make sure she washes up before, to, before bed and make sure she's in bed by eight. And then you say, well, the younger one though, Remember X, Y, and Z. 
keep in mind A, B, and C. Make sure to call me if either one, two, or three happens. And your instructions are far more detailed for the younger child. Why? Is it because you favor the younger over the older? Absolutely not. It's because the younger has specific needs that are more acute and more dependent. They're more dependent. In the same way, why is 1 Timothy 5 so extensive? Because it shows God's fatherly heart to care for those who are the most neediest of his children and his family. Friends, in God's family, we are to care for one another and those in need among us. This is godliness. You see, Paul goes on to write something interesting because he says, if you're a widow and you have children or grandchildren, they should be the primary caretakers of the family before the church steps in. So he says in verse four, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents for this is pleasing in God. So he says, believers who honor their parents, take care of their parents, this is godly, it pleases God. Now, why is it godly to do this? Because what is godliness? Godliness is when your conduct matches your confession. Godliness is when your doctrine is put into practice. And this pleases God because what does God reveal about himself? That he has a heart to care for those who are needy and those who are desperate and those who are dependent. And God is pleased when his heart becomes our heart and when his care is shown through our care and when his priorities become our priorities. And Paul goes so far as to say this using strong, stern, and severe words because he says that if in your life the priorities and practices are not what God wants, it's not merely disappointing to God. He says it's a denial of God. Listen to what he says in verse eight. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Why so strong? Why so severe and stern? Because Paul is saying, if you know God's heart, his heart for the least of these, his heart for those who are needy, and you refuse to care about what he cares about, He says, you're denying, you're rejecting, you're refusing God to obey him on these clear matters. Dear friends, how does God want members of his household to behave? He wants us to care for the least and the last amongst. This is who God is. This is how he identifies himself. He doesn't attach himself to the strong and the mighty, to the independent and the can-do attitudes. He reveals himself in Psalm 9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Psalm 68, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. 2 Corinthians 1, the father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. God identifies himself with the needy, the least and the last. So in the church, we are to have eyes to see and a heart to care and a motivation to go to those in need. Who are they in the church? Certainly they are widows in the church. That's what Paul is speaking about in the context of the Ephesian church. 
those who couldn't provide for themselves, those who couldn't fend for themselves, those who were powerless and voiceless. But we look around in our church today and those needy in the church aren't just the widows. The needy in the church are those who, through the battering of life's storms and the darkness of the valleys they're in, and through the fire of the furnace, find themselves weak and weary from the world. It refers to those in the church who are orphans and fatherless, those who feel oppressed, those who are strangers and sufferers. These friends, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you'll see all the needs of those in the church around us. And God says, I have a heart to care for the least of these. And I'm calling the family to look at others and see them as fathers and brothers and mothers and sisters and to care. It's a high calling, a difficult task, but it's not impossible. How might we become this kind of spiritual family? Well, the culture of care is cultivated in the church as the gospel gives us compassionate eyes, a changed heart, and a new motivation. The gospel gives us compassionate eyes to see, a changed heart to care, and a new motivation to go out. See, here's how the gospel does this. Before you see anybody else as needy, as you label them as desperate and dependent, you must first understand this was your spiritual state before God. Left to yourselves on your own, you were needy, destitute, desperate, and dependent. Every single one of us. In our sin, you and I, powerless, voiceless, no ability, no agency. We cannot do anything about our spiritual condition. What is our spiritual condition? Spiritually poor, morally bankrupt, incapable to help ourselves, unable to save ourselves. And in this state, we had no spiritual standing before God, no significance before God, no status before Him, no security. We were all spiritual widows, spiritual orphans, spiritual sojourners. We were helpless and hopeless. We were most to be pitied. And yet the good news of the gospel is that God saw and God cared. That God was moved and then God moved. You see, it's one thing for God to be moved to be filled with compassion, to be filled with pity, for him to be moved by our state and our condition. It's another thing entirely that God then moved. God then came to us. God came for you. God came because he cared. And in coming to us, he did what we were powerless to do. Save us from our sins. Find us in our lostness. Save us from his wrath. You see, it's because God cared that he didn't leave us alone but he sent Jesus to come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Save us, forgive us, redeem us, restore us, reconcile us, cover us, close us, indwell in us, dwell with us, comfort us, strengthen us, and bring us into his family. You see, the gospel doesn't say God was just moved by looking at you, but he moved. He came in care and concern. He gave his son so that the least and the last would be brought into his family forgiven of our sins and welcomed. This is how the gospel transforms us, empowers us. It's to the degree that the gospel begins to make sense in your heart and then it pierces your heart and then it plants itself in your life 
that then this culture of genuine care for one another is created and cultivated. And then we begin to have eyes to see and a heart to care and a new motivation to care for others because God has cared for us. We're not only moved by people's need, but we move toward their need. So let me ask you this morning, how can you begin to move toward others to care for them? How might we become this kind of church? What can we practically do? Maybe it involves lending a listening ear to somebody sharing. To not check your watch, to not turn your body away. <laughs> to sit with them and be present. Maybe it means praying for them on the spot instead of saying, oh, I'll pray for that later, which we all know is a gamble because there's a good chance you'll forget. But to pray for them on the spot. Maybe it's hearing something and then remembering to send a text of encouragement to follow up saying, I'm still thinking about you, praying for you, and I want to encourage you. Maybe it's an invitation out for a cup of coffee or opening your doors to welcome them into your home. Maybe it's offering them a seat at the table or a spot on your couch, providing for them in their practical needs, giving your time up to help. Friends, how might we be a caring community as a household of faith? How might the gospel begin to transform our hearts so that we have God's heart? Yes, it begins with the widows among us. But it extends to all those who are in need, our fathers and brothers and mothers and sisters. Let me close with this illustration that I read. Um, Joanne Shelter was a uh, missionary uh, with Wycliffe uh, among the uh, Balangal tribesmen in the Philippine Islands. And she was helping translate the New Testament into their language. And she tells the story of what happened as they were translating 1 Timothy and as they got to chapter 5, she writes this. We got to the end of the book where it talks about widows in need and the church's responsibility to take over for widows who have no other source of livelihood. About the same time, Forsan, one of those women the spirits had earlier tried to kill, she lost her husband. And she was a widow indeed. All of her children had long been dead. She had no relatives in Bangalore. In fact, she was not even a Bangalore. And in Bangalore culture, there is no mercy if there is no blood connection. She would have been left alone in her house with or without food until she died. One of the men who had helped me in the translation went over and took Forsan by the hand with her, one little pot, with her one little pot, brought her over and said, you will be like my mother and you will live with us in our home. And that old woman is there today, even though she's old and sickly. There's a wonderful example of how the gospel begins to tra transform priorities and practices you read the Bible, you're convicted as you see God's heart for his needy children. You experience the grace with which he came to you in your need. And it begins to move you to respond and care for others. This is what happens when the gospel takes centrality in our church community. It cultivates a culture of care that we might be this kind of caring spiritual family, a household of God. Let's pray.